Hello and hell no and hell no. What? (laughs) Hello and what? Oh man, I'm really blanking all of a sudden. Hello and welcome back to Hell No, a true crime podcast with your host, Lauren Lucio, and this is part two. So where we left off in part one was the friend of the family who suspected their son might be involved in this. Um, They were kind of looking into that aspect and that was all unfolding. So let's just jump back into where we left off. Police were just about to learn the identities of the two boys that they had been searching for since they had seen them on that low quality, grainy security camera. And these two boys are 10 year old John Venables and Robert Thompson. Police think, no, it can't be them. We're looking for teenagers. We're not looking for 10 year olds, but let's go get them. Let's question them. Let's see what what happens. So police are dispatched to pick up the boys at the same time. And the boys are both brought to separate police stations for questioning. Police also seize their clothing and footwear they were wearing Friday for forensic analysis. The boys were arrested at 7 a.m. They had their fingerprints taken and the questioning started around 5 p.m. John Venables claimed that he had never been to the shopping center that Friday, but because police had their fingerprints that they had taken when they were brought in to custody and an eyewitness said that the boys were dirtying up a shop window with their dirty hands on Friday at the shopping center police were able to go down to the shopping center lift their fingerprints off that window compare them to the fingerprints that they had just taken from the boys and they were a match now they could place the boys at the shop shopping center where John was claiming that they never were at Police now know for sure that they were there and they were lying. Police also had established that John and Robert did know the difference between right and wrong, which they did. This is something that they had to establish right off the bat. Police knew this case was going to be huge and they knew that it was going to go in front of the Crown Court. So they did everything by the book. They crossed their T's, they dotted those I's. None of them had ever questioned suspects so young before and they knew that if they were aggressive or scary the boys would just shut down and and not answer their questions so they took a very gentle approach and eventually it worked robert had a lawyer present for his questioning police say that he didn't seem scared at all and, and he told them that his favorite hobby was skipping school robert does tell police him and john were at the shopping center and that he does remember seeing james and even gives a very detailed description of what james was wearing to the point police are thinking that he would have had to been around james or got a really good look at him or spent a lot of time with James to remember his outfit so clearly and with so much detail. After a while, police start to pull the truth out of the boys. So Robert tells police that John took James. Robert was crying, but you know, police are like, you have no tears. I'm not seeing a single tear. 
And they were like, okay, he's trying to manipulate us, but they didn't buy any of that. Robert also says that he never took the baby, that John took the baby. And quote, if I wanted to kill a baby, I'd kill me own, wouldn't I? Unquote. And I believe he is referring to his younger siblings, which is just so incredibly messed up for a lot of reasons. Like, has he been thinking about this? Why did he say that? It's just very odd. Police question Robert about if James said anything when they were taking him or when they had took him. And he tells police that James was crying and said, quote, I want my mom, unquote. But when he says it, like you can hear it in the 60 Minutes documentary they made of it, when uh, they made about this case, when he says it, he says it like a baby. He says it exactly the way that he would have heard it come out of James's mouth. And it was just so incredibly haunting to hear. Police tell John, who is being interviewed separately, that Robert has just confessed and that the two were at the shopping center and that John took James, that Robert was saying that John took James. John starts crying and calling Robert a liar. He says he never took him. John asks police a question that raises a lot of flags and also makes police think that they do in fact have the right people because John asks, can you get fingerprints off of skin? meaning he was worried his fingerprints would be found on James's body, basically. Eventually, he does admit to taking James and that it was his idea to take him, but it wasn't his idea to kill him. He says that was Robert's idea. It was John's mother who eventually got him to confess. When the cameras were off, she was in there talking to him and she was telling him, look, you need to tell the truth. And no matter what it is, we're going to love you. Just tell the truth. Police then get the confession on tape. When the interview starts again, he says, quote, I killed James, unquote. This is the story John gives police. He says they took James from the shopping center to the canal. Their original plan was to throw him in the water. And Robert was the one who was trying to get James to get close to the edge and kneel down to look in the water in an attempt to push him in. But when James wouldn't do it, Robert got angry and violent and he picked up James and threw him on the ground. And, and that's when James first bumped his head and started crying. Then after they walked to the railway tracks, seen by multiple people, stopped and talked to her, oh, you know, that, that whole thing happened. They get to the railway tracks and that's where Robert started throwing bricks at James. John says he wouldn't throw the brick. He had a brick Robert was like, yeah, throw the brick. And John was like, no, and put the brick down. So John says he wouldn't do it, but he said that Robert was telling him to, that he told him to throw the bricks. Robert says John threw the bricks at James's face. Basically, they were both blaming each other after they realized they couldn't deny their actions anymore. John tells police that Robert was yelling at James to stay down and calling him stupid as he was throwing bricks at, at James. He also says it was Robert who hit James in the head with the metal bar, knocking him out on the tracks. Another warning, I'm I, another warning. So this is another warning. I'm going to talk about the injuries again for a moment. So skip ahead if you don't want to hear this. I'm not sure if the boys gave police detail about the paint that they had threw in James's face or the batteries they stuffed in his mouth, but it was determined the boys did shoplift those items from the shopping center earlier that day. The boys never admitted to sexually assaulting James, but both police and investigators are sure of it, even detailing they believe that the boys shoved batteries up James's anus. 
Police believe the boys threw bricks and rocks at James and also kicked him in the head and face, which they found forensic evidence on Robert's shoe of James's blood, meaning that he had kicked James in the head and face. And they also matched injuries to James's face, markings that had been left to the shoe. Something called the D-rings on the shoe, which you put the laces through. They made a distinct mark on James's face and they found those exact D-rings on Robert's shoe. Also, after knocking out James with the metal bar, they placed him across the tracks and covered his head with rubble with intention to make it look like an accident, which they admitted. Another chilling discovery John Venables had told police was the day that they had taken James hours earlier they had tried to take another boy another two-year-old boy so it was three hours before they took James it was at 12 30 p.m a mother named Diane Powers she had caught these two boys leaving the shopping center with her two-year-old son John said that they planned to push the little boy into oncoming buses to kill him and make it look like an accident these two are just pure fucking evil. They woke up that morning and they were like, let's abduct and murder a baby. Police say they showed no remorse for what they had done. February 20th, 10-year-olds John Venables and Robert Thompson are charged with the murder of two-year-old James Bulger. The community was outraged. They wanted revenge. The streets were filled with rioters wanting to get their hands on the boys for some public justice let's just say that it was so intense that the police had to send out decoy vehicles first in order to safely move and detain the killers the public wanted the blood of those boys to run in the streets they wanted them to never take another breath again even to this day they have threats against their lives Denise was shutting down and spending all her time isolated in her room at her mother's house. The media were everywhere and the family was being harassed everywhere they went, even their own homes. So Denise had to keep her curtains closed at all times because they were always outside of her house trying to get a photo of her, which I find disgusting. The media was constantly referring to James as Jamie, which Denise hated because she never called him that. Perhaps they were referring to him as Jamie because it was more of a juvenile sounding name, sounded more like a baby name than James. I'm not sure. Her and Ralph's relationship was crumbling due to the grief and stress placed upon them. They were, they were both dealing with it very differently. Ralph was drinking a lot and Denise was isolating herself and not talking to anyone, just trying to find the strength to stay alive, even though she didn't particularly want to live anymore. When Denise got the news from the police that John Venables and Robert Thompson were arrested for the murder of James, she was relieved, but at the same time, she was still devastated and heartbroken because even though they caught them, it would never bring her son back. Denise was receiving so many condolences, cards, and letters from strangers, from people all around the world, supporting her, giving her kind words, wishing her well, and also sending money in the cards. She was so touched that she had so much support uh, and was receiving this from her community, her family, and strangers around the globe. But nothing nothing could make her feel better the funeral directors wouldn't allow james's family to pay for the funeral and they donated all their services including the tiny white casket james was buried in 
Denise now had a heartbreaking decision to make of what she was going to bury her son in. Denise and Ralph decided to not view James after after death, as she wanted all her memories of him to be when he was alive and well, bouncing around, healthy, smiling, that beautiful boy that she knew and loved. She wanted to preserve those memories, so they decided against seeing his body after death the only people who saw james's body were the boys who found him the investigators the police the funeral home it wasn't it wasn't an open casket funeral denise decided to bury james in an adorable little suit that he had worn at christmas and he had gotten so many compliments on it she also decided to put in james's favorite teddy bear and toy motorcycle along with and this breaks my heart his flashlight because he didn't like being in the dark which absolutely broke my heart when i read that denise's brother ray did a lot of the funeral planning because she just couldn't deal with that she just could not deal with planning the funeral of her son who had been violently murdered James's funeral was a Catholic mass and Father Michael O'Connell agreed to take care of it, to take on this, this mass. Denise describes Father Michael as incredible because he helped her so much during this time. March 1st, 1993 is the day of James's funeral. That day, all Denise wanted to do, as she says in her book, all she wanted to do was curl up with her son in his tiny white casket. Thousands of people lined the street that day of his funeral. They were all lining the streets, bowing their heads, showing their respects, and they just wanted to all send him off to rest in peace. So many people had sent flowers that it took three cars full to bring them all to the service. The media coverage and crowd was massive. Thousands and thousands of people. The service was aired on television, but the burial was private. It was only for family and friends. At James's service, they played Heal the World by Michael Jackson because that was his favorite artist. Michael Jackson heard about this because it was so widely televised like this was all over the world so michael jackson heard about this and he sent james's family flowers and a condolences card that's how big this case was james bulger was laid to rest two weeks before his third birthday denise says in her book if someone had offered to help kill myself right then and there i would have done it without thinking twice but not all was lost something amazing happened and gave her the will to live. By the end of March, she found out she was pregnant again and she felt she had purpose again and she needed to survive. She needed to survive so her baby could survive. Of course, there were shitty people out there saying, oh, Denise is just trying to replace James. Oh, she got pregnant really quick. No, she says not like that at all. She, this wasn't like, it wasn't she didn't plan it to be like this. She was never trying to replace James. It's just something that happened. She knew she could never replace James. By the time Denise was eight months pregnant, the trial was about to begin and she was anxious that the, she was anxious of the stress that it would put on her and her unborn child. So she decided not to attend and instead members of her family would go for her and tell her what happened. Ralph, he went the first day, but then he didn't return until the last day, the day of the sentencing. 
The trial focused not on if John Venables and Robert Thompson were guilty, as that much was clear, but instead if they understood right from wrong, if their intent was to kill, if they knew what they were doing was wrong. But given the fact they tried to abduct a boy before James to throw him under a bus, I would say their intentions are pretty damn clear. I would also say they knew what they did was wrong because they hid it. They lied. They hid it. They didn't come forward. They didn't tell anybody. They knew what they did was wrong. A lawyer defending the killers tried to get the class thrown out because it was so heavily reported on that it's he he called it an abuse of process. He argued that they didn't have the right to a fair trial. Luckily, that was overruled. But had it not been, the boys would have went free and all charges would have been dropped. John Venables and Robert Thompson wore their school uniforms in court, probably in an attempt to make them look in, like innocent children. In Denise's book, she writes that she heard how they were acting in court, how John and Robert were acting in court, such as not worried at all, laughing, making jokes, almost like they weren't on trial for murdering her baby. And Denise actually goes to the sentencing and she witnesses this in person. Jurors were shown graphic images of how James's body was discovered and some of them cried it was just so graphic it was so horrifying to see the images were just incredibly disturbing and probably will still haunt the jurors to this day 37 witnesses were called that saw the boys with James that day either heading from the shopping center to the railway line or saw the boys in the shopping center Also to testify that day was child forensic psychiatrist, Dr. Susan Bailey, and she testified that there was no doubt John Venables knew right from wrong at the time of the abduction and murder. She couldn't speak for Robert Thompson as his lawyer advised him against speaking to a psychiatrist. Hmm, why would, why, why? Hmm? Why would you advise that lawyer? Denise's brother Ray attended the trial every day to relay the information to Denise and Ralph. And it wasn't until later that Ray told Denise that he had been getting coffees and tea for all of the police officers in court that day and himself. I believe he said he had about 12 orders all up. And when he was at the cafe ordering these coffees and teas, he was suddenly pushed pretty forcibly by a passerby. And when he looked to see what was happening, like, you know, was this an innocent bump in who, you know, he just looked. It was one of the defendant's mother and he believes it was intentional. So that seems pretty dirty. That seems pretty gross that he, they would do that. See him in a cafe and just like bump him. Like it just seems so immature. It's disgusting. Ray also said it seemed like the other families involved had no sympathy for James's family. And the boys accused seemed to also not show any remorse or sympathy while in court. I wasn't there, so it's hard to say, but that's how he felt. And if that's how he felt, that's how he felt. In another book I read called The Sleep of Reason by David James Smith, it was published in it that Anne Thompson, the mother of Robert Thompson, had thoughts like, so she would be watching the news. She saw that all this was being televised. She would see Denise talking to the media. She Those things were being reported and aired. And she remembers thinking, if that child would have been on reins, this never would have happened. By reins, she means like a harness. And when I read that, 
my jaw dropped because personally, I think this might be her clinging to straws in an attempt to not recognize the evil act her son committed because in reality, if her son didn't partake in the abduction and murder of James, this never would have happened. The only person responsible for murder is the murderer. Many children at that time were not wearing reins. None of, you know, a lot of children weren't on harnesses. They're still alive today. You know why? Because somebody didn't make a conscious decision to abduct them, beat them to death, and leave them, and leave them for dead, to be run over by a train. Oh, it just, it made me so mad when I read that. November 24th, 1993, nearly 10 months after the murder, was the sentencing of John Venables and Robert Thompson. And this was the only day Denise went to the courtroom. By this time, she was heavily pregnant, but she desperately wanted to see justice for her son. And she wanted to be there for the sentencing. She was shocked in the courtroom when she saw the families of John and Robert laughing and carrying on like it was all a big fucking joke. It made her feel sick, the lack of empathy and sympathy she was witnessing. Her baby had been murdered and this family was just acting so grossly. John and Robert, they were no different until their verdicts were read out loud. The jury handed over the decision to the judge and he read for count one of the abduction of Diane Powers' little boy earlier that same day, James was taken by the two boys was undecided. Count two on the abduction of James Bulger, guilty. Count three on the murder of James Bulger, also guilty. Denise and Ralph and their entire family, they were so relieved to hear that guilty verdict. This is at the time when you can finally see some tears shed by the offenders, but Denise was convinced not a single one was for her son. Instead, those tears were for getting caught. They were just sad they got caught. The judge addressed the boys and said, quote, Robert Thompson and John Venables, the killing of James Bulger was an act of unparalleled evil and barbarity. The child of two was taken from his mother on a journey of over two miles and then on the railway line was battered to death without mercy and then his body placed across the railway line so that it could be run over by a train in an attempt to conceal his murder. In my judgment, your conduct was both cunning and very wicked. The sentence that I pass upon you both is that you should be detained during her majesty's pleasure in such a place and under such conditions as the security of state may now direct and that means you will be securely detained for very very many years until the home security is satisfied that you have matured and are fully rehabilitated and until you are no longer a danger let them be taken down unquote Through the entire investigation and the trial, the boys' names were never allowed to be released. They were called like Boy A, Boy B, never John Venables, Robert Thompson. That that was unable to be released to the public. But after the guilty verdict was read, it was now possible for the media to release the boys' identities. And that meant everybody knew their name. But there was a stipulation on this there had been a gagging order put in place which stated no new information about john and robert could be released specifically but not limited to their whereabouts 
because people wanted these boys dead. Even though the boys were found guilty that day, the punishment was still unknown, and Denise was thinking John and Robert would be given at least 20 years for their crimes, but she was told soon after that they were only going to be receiving an eight-year sentence to be served in a secure children's home, which that's fucked up because they did such a messed up thing to only get eight years. I think it was actually seven years and eight months. It was less than eight years and it wasn't even in a prison. It wasn't even in a juvenile hall. It was a secure children's home, which meant no bars. I can't be sure what they look like inside, but I'm, I am sure there's no bars. The two boys, so they were placed in separate facilities. They're still to this day, not allowed to be around each other. And in those facilities, they had their own bedrooms, they had their own bathrooms, they were given video games, they were given new clothes and toys and taken on supervised outings. I'm not sure where, I I think I read in the book, it was like sports games or something like that. Um, all in the name of rehabilitating them. Later, Denise says it was like they were being rewarded for killing her son and they never spent a single day behind bars. A unit manager of the children's home said in the 60 Minutes documentary that John Venables appeared to be more like he he appeared to be very disturbed more so than Robert. So John was like the very in, in her opinion, he just came off more. He looked more disturbed, I believe she said. Um, and she when she would witness Robert Thompson at the other childcare facility, she said he would sit in a chair and suck his thumb. She felt like he was regressing almost. Another person interviewed in the 60 Minutes documentary who worked with the boys, I'm not sure if he was a psychologist or what he was, but he would spend time with these boys and he would talk to them. And he said one day he was talking to John Venables and they were talking about fighting or they were talking about something like that. And the guy said, oh, you couldn't pull skin off rice pudding, meaning like, oh, you know, you're not a you're not a fighter, something like that. But then John responded, oh yeah, bring your baby here and I will batter it. (laughs) What the fuck? What the fuck? About two weeks after the sentencing, Denise's baby was born by a scheduled cesarean and she named him Michael James Bulger. And this was the first authentic and real smile that she had given for a long, long, long time. She was genuinely happy. She felt like she had purpose again. She had a reason to live. She had to love and protect and raise her child. The media was in a frenzy to get a picture of Denise with her new baby boy, and they had taken great lengths. They had snuck into the hospital pretending to be patients. The... (laughs) So they were sneaking around, but oh, I'm sick or whatever. And then they'd go in and snap, try to snap photos. And it was just so disrupting to the hospital because they were just outside with their media trucks and their cameras, disturbing people coming in and out that eventually Denise was asked to leave because it was disrupting the way that the hospital was functioning. Denise, she was nice about this. She totally understood where they were coming from. And she says it was really funny the day that she left because the staff had to put a blanket over her head, sneak her out the back door in like a huddled group and get her into a car. And she was thinking like, what? I'm not even like, what is happening here? Why is this the way I need to leave a hospital? Like it was comical. It was so over the top. 
Something had sparked inside Denise, and it was this overpowering will to fight to get justice for James. And she and a lot of other people thought the eight years children's home sentence was way too lenient. So she started a petition, and the community rallied around her, and they supported her big time. And eventually, she reached 300,000 signatures, which eventually turned that eight-year sentence into a 10 to 15-year sentence. And even though she was shooting for 25 years, she felt like she was finally heard and that she had a small win. And she was accepting of the outcome until a few years later when the 10 to 15 year sentence was reverted back to eight when an American lawyer named Tom Laughlin became the man of her nightmares. This was a man fighting for the release of the boys who killed James. He brought forward claims to the European Court of Human Rights that the boys never should have been tried in an adult court of law due to their age. And because it was highly publicized, the boys didn't have a fair trial. And the European Commission of Human Rights agreed, and that somehow reverted the sentencing back to eight years. This entire aspect was incredibly confusing for me, but basically that's what it boiled down to. Denise had even gone to the European Commission of Human Rights when this was uh, going through court. She had even gone there to give a give a statement or to to be there. I don't know. It was it's kind of a confusing process. I couldn't really grasp it, but. Yeah, she was fighting. She was fighting against it. As for her and Ralph's relationship, it came to an end after they returned from a holiday in Australia. Ralph thought it would be a good idea for them to take a trip and visit family overseas. Denise, of course, was terrified to leave her baby, but Michael was in good hands with her family, who I'm sure were very, very protective at this time after all that had just happened. The day that they left for Australia, Denise could be found crying and clutching the door frame of their front door of their house like she was grabbing on for dear life she was like I don't want to go I don't want to leave my baby and yeah she did not want to be dragged away without her baby but eventually she went they convinced her a holiday will be good for you your baby's in good hands let's take a getaway to Australia so they do go and her baby was looked after great and it was a great holiday but all Denise wanted was to be by her baby's side 24 7 so they returned home after the two-week holiday and the first thing she did was frantically barge into the house where's my baby and she had her baby and she was hugging and cuddling her baby boy and yeah she she liked the vacation but she'd she'd much prefer to be with her baby even though the holiday was good for her and Ralph, something strange was still happening. And that same night after returning home after the bags were brought in, Ralph needed to nip out for something. But he didn't take the car initially. Hours later, Denise notices, oh, hold on a minute, where's the car? It's not in the driveway. So she's like, oh, fuck, did someone steal it? So she calls and reports it to police. She's like, my car's missing. I'm pretty sure my husband doesn't have it. Like, my car's been stolen police were like okay and they go and look for it well it must have been ralph that came back to the house to get the car sneakily perhaps i'm not too sure what happened there but police did find the car and when they came to tell denise that they had their car they told her that they had also caught ralph in the back seat with another woman he was having an affair and that's when denise learned that her marriage was over and honestly she just accepted it she had no energy to fight this battle she just accepted it moved on 
She was, however, worried to tell her mother, though. And one day she just blurted out, Right, Mom? Ralph left me? Don't kick off? I'm fine? I've got Michael and it's for the best. (laughs) Which I could just... She's such a strong woman, I could just see her. Right, Mom? (laughs) Makes me laugh. Uh, She was immediately relieved. She felt relief just wash over her as she made this confession to her mother and everything was fine. Her mother supported her. A couple years later, she met the true love of her life. Denise didn't go out much as she preferred to be at home with her baby, but Michael was now about two and a half years old and her family thought she should have a night out. She was only 28 years old. Like she's young, she's single, maybe go out and have some drinks with your girlfriends you know, take a load off, Denise, take a load off. You've been through a lot, girl. So she decides, okay, I will do that. That night, she met a man named Stuart as he offered to buy her a drink. And he didn't even know who she was at all, which Denise really enjoyed. She found that refreshing because everybody seemed to know who she was at this point because of the massive coverage of James's case. So eventually they start dating and Stuart was great with Michael, and once Denise was sure that it was a lasting relationship, they moved in together, and Denise is overwhelmed with joy to discover she's pregnant again, but was soon met with the grief she knew all too well. Before the 12-week mark, she had miscarried. In Denise's book, she wrote, she recalled thinking she has now lost a child in every possible way. By the time Michael was in school, which was incredibly hard for Denise to let him go to school without her sitting in the corner of the classroom micromanaging his every move, she did it. Eventually she did it. It was hard for her, but she did it. Her and Stuart got engaged and a few months later she was pregnant again. Everything was smooth sailing and Denise was feeling like her life was coming back together. July 8th, 1988, Thomas Stuart Fergus was born happy and healthy. Three months later, Stuart and Denise had their wedding. Unfortunately, due to a stroke, her mother couldn't attend. So on her wedding day, in her dress and Stuart in his suit, they went to where her mother was being cared for so that her mother could see her in her wedding dress, which I found so sweet. One month later, her mother passed away. The day that her mother passed away, other patients in the hospital were asking about the little boy running through the hallways, but nurses informed them that there was no children on the floor that day, and if there were, they certainly wouldn't be allowed to run around in the hallways. And when Denise heard this, she believed that this was James coming to guide her mother into the afterlife so her mother didn't have to make that crossover on her own. Soon after this, when Thomas was only a few months old, Denise became pregnant again. Talk about fertile. This pregnancy also went smooth, and on July 5th, 1999, she gave birth to Leon Gary Fergus. Denise was thrilled. She was so happy to have three healthy boys, and now her family was complete. As Denise was getting her life back together and feeling happy, the release date of John Venables and Robert Thompson was approaching. The release of the killers brought it all back for Denise, and she felt like she was drowning again. The day of the release, Denise locked herself in her room and smashed everything out of anger. Her emotions were just more than she could cope with. She was so angry. She was anxious. She was just all of the emotions. Everything had come pouring 
back. She was anxious, wondering if they would come to her home or if they would go to her children's school or if, if would they come and find her because she was pushing for their sentences to be longer and harsher. She was concerned. She had a lot of concerns. John and Robert were released on a life license, which meant they were supposed to be monitored by law enforcement or the government or or their parole officers, whoever. They were supposed to be monitored closely. And if they did anything wrong, then they would be sent to prison immediately. But we will find out later that they weren't monitoring them close enough. John and Robert were released under the condition that they were never to see each other again or have any contact with each other and neither of them should ever have contact with James's family and also should never be in that area ever again, meaning Liverpool or Merseyside area. But still, Denise was afraid to go to the shopping center with her children. And if she did, then Stuart had to come and the children had to stay either in the shopping trolley or holding the shopping trolley. And if she lost sight of them for even a millisecond, panic would consume her and she would scream for them just to look down and see them holding onto the trolley. She was, she was on edge. In letters uh, and government statements, Denise wrote countless times, tons of them. She said that Uh, upon John and Robert's release, if any families were hurt by them, or if they did what they had done again, then the blood is on the hands of the system that set them free. The same system meant to protect people from harm. Denise, she never wished any harm upon the boys. She only wanted justice. And she always said she would never provoke violence in James's name. And in her book, she writes, there were numerous threats made by those who were against the release, including vows to hunt down Thompson and Venables and kill them. As much as I understand the mood, we haven't ever wanted violence in James's name. Denise had heard rumors that John Venables was out drinking at the bars and clubs in Liverpool, which was a violation of his release as he he shouldn't be in that area at all. And this made Denise really uneasy because her nieces were at that age where they could start going to bars and clubs. And it just made her sick to think that they could cross paths with John Venables or even worse, talk to him unknowingly. Denise, she had also had a stalker at one point. It was completely unrelated to the Thompson and Venables family and was most likely someone who had been watching the media coverage and developed some kind of sick obsession with her. I'm not sure of the details, but she did say in her book that at one point she did have a stalker and it was so bad that it actually escalated to that stalker facing jail time and going to prison for stalking her. So it was pretty serious. Nine years after the release of John Venables, he was caught with child pornography in March of 2010. And he was sent to prison for two years with parole after one year, even though this is a huge violation of his release. And to me, this proves that he was not rehabilitated. And I'm surprised the courts didn't see it this way either, but they were quite lenient on him yet again. Denise was able to give an impact statement in writing and was allowed to attend by way of video, but she wouldn't be able to see John Venables, but he would be able to see her and that John would be able to read her impact statement, but she couldn't 
read his statement. And to her, this felt wrong. He had total access to viewing her and reading her statement, but she couldn't have any anything to do with him. She couldn't see what he looked like. She couldn't read his statements. She didn't have any access to information about him. And to her, this felt like the court was protecting this murderer. In Denise's impact statement, she asked simple questions, things that she should have rightly known the answers to, but was never given them. And these questions were, has he, meaning John Venables, entered the Merseyside or Liverpool area? Has he been in trouble with the law since his release? Has he visited James's grave as part of his rehabilitation? Does he live anywhere near where I live? Denise also says in her book that the answers that she received over the years were simply no or cannot be told. She also says that knowing Venable's recall under the terms of his parole in 2010, she learned that the true answers to those questions should have been yes, or she even says, she says, more worryingly, we don't check. In her statement, she urges them to recognize that he remains a danger to society. Denise goes into more detail about her family in her statement, but when she learned that John Venables would be able to read it, she took out anything that could give him any information about her family, her children, her whereabouts. I'm sure he may have possibly known that, but just stuff like that. John Venables was released under his fake identity that they had given him again. And then in November 2017, he was yet again caught with child pornography. This time, a lot more and a lot worse. He was posing online as a mother who sexually abused her children and even shared images, which God only knows where he got them from or how he got them. As he posed as this mother, he was looking for parents who sexually abused their children and was trying to obtain more photographs through these parents. I feel so sick just fucking reading and writing about this. It's just, it's so terrible. Why is this man free? At this time, John Venables, he was 35 years old when this happened. Police found over 1,000 highly indecent and graphic images of children. Many babies and toddlers being sexually abused. He even had a manual in his possession titled, How to Have Sex with Small Children Safely. Who the fuck wrote that? That is, ugh, makes me so mad. The images found were some of the worst imaginable and the court had them sectioned into categories. 392 were category A, 148 were category B, 630 were category C. So I'm not exactly sure what each category means. And frankly, I'm not doing any in-depth research into this because it's just so fucked up. It makes me angry. But if I had to guess, I would say category A is the worst imaginable and the youngest imaginable. The, the judge, he had even said that there were a lot of images of babies being abused in that category. Also, many of these images and videos in total were of male toddlers, John Venables pled guilty and was sentenced to 40 months in prison. 40 months in prison, not even four years, which means he could be free right now. Denise still continues her fight and she wanted answers as to why John Venables was free to commit these crimes and why both her son's killers were set free. So she started a petition for an inquiry and for the... 
an inquiry for the government uh, to debate these issues. She got 100,000 signatures, and when that was denied, she got 200,000 signatures. And then it was agreed to be reviewed. What happened from there, I'm unsure. I don't know if that's still going through the courts, if she's still grappling with that, uh, I'm unsure. Denise did, however, try to make this horrifying situation into something good. And in James's name, she started a James Bulger Memorial Fund, which is used as support for families going through similar situations. And they provide cost-free holiday for families to get away and, and de-stress if they've been involved in, you know, if they've been the victim of crimes or bullying or anything like that, as well as providing for families that have been victim to crime. They also use this fund to reward people that have done good for the community and that have made a positive impact in society. So not only helping families in need of a break, but also encouraging and recognizing the people doing good. Denise also raised money to start a school in James's memory called the James Bulger House. And this school is specifically for children who have been bullied so badly that they are afraid to return to the school that they were ostracized from. I was shocked to learn that this case wasn't as unique as I had originally thought when I heard it. In a book written by David James Smith called The Sleep of Reason, he lists off many many similar cases dating back to 1831 all the way up until 1992. And I'm going to give a warning before I read these off. I don't go into a lot of detail, but there is enough detail that it it could upset some people. So just skip ahead a minute if you if you feel this is something you're uncomfortable with. 1992, North Cumberland in Northern England, an 11-year-old girl was babysitting an 18-month-old baby, and she had killed that baby by hitting it against its cot and then suffocating him because she couldn't stand the crying. In 1982, Birkenhead, also in England, very near Liverpool, a 9-year-old boy stabbed a 12-year-old boy, killing him. 1977, Peckham, which is in London, England, a 12-year-old boy and some friends murdered a homeless man. 1947, a woman left her baby in a stroller when she went into the shop for a second. A nine-year-old boy took the stroller and pushed it into the water like a canal or a river. He knew fully there was a baby in the pram, but he said he just wanted to do it. The baby drowned and the boy was detained for five years. This was also a uh, English case as well. And the list went on and on. It was shocking to read. It was like pages and pages of these cases. One case was so similar to this one, and it happened in 1988 in Borehamwood, England. And a 12-year-old boy abducted a two-year-old girl and walked her to the railway just over a mile where many people were witness to this. But again, nobody thought it was abduction and murder. The boy murdered the toddler by suffocating her. He pushed her face into the ground until she died. There was so much information on this case, it was quite overwhelming to cover, which is why this episode is so long. I also have work another job <laughs> as well. So I spent over 30 hours researching and writing um, this, this episode. It never gets less shocking the more I learn. It only gets more shocking. I have no idea the whereabouts of John Venables or Robert Thompson today, but my guess is they are both free and still living under those fake names that the government so nicely gave them. And if you're in England, they may be closer to you than you think because we don't know where they are. 
And you can thank the legal system for that. Honestly, it terrifies me they are free. And if I had children and lived in England, my children would be tied to me until they were 18 years old and they would never be allowed to talk to anyone I hadn't known for my entire life. But I'm paranoid, so that's just me. So that concludes this week's shocking, terrible episode. If you're listening to me on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review. If you're listening on Spotify, please star rate me and follow if you want to stay on top of new episodes being released. And if you're listening on Google Podcasts or Anchor, thank you very much. I'm not sure what options you have there, but if there's anything to rate or review, awesome, please do it. You can also follow Hell No, a true crime podcast on Instagram. And I do also have a Facebook for my podcast, but I rarely check it or update it as I don't find it as user-friendly as Instagram. I've been meaning to look into Twitter actually. So I'm really tired of speaking the names of the murderers, but of course, you know, I give them a huge hell no. They ruined a family and they destroyed a mother and there is no clear motive. The entire situation was so utterly senseless and evil they could never give a clear answer why they did what they did so hold your babies close thanks for listening and see you next week